Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Ian DeBorha, and welcome to IMDb's Movies That Changed My Life, a podcast where your favorite stars break down the films that made them who they are today. This week's guest is host of Top Chef and Taste the Nation with Padma Lakshmi, Padma Lakshmi. Padma and I talk about the unique food culture of the Pacific Northwest, the importance of telling stories through a new lens in Taste the Nation, and the movies that changed her life. If you're enjoying the show and haven't given us a review yet, please do or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Movies That Changed My Life. Thanks again for listening. Here's Movies That Changed My Life with Padma Lakshmi. Thank you for joining Movies That Changed My Life. Very blessed and honored to have you on as a guest. Uh, so I'm actually a few hours north of Portland. I'm in Seattle. And I know it took a little bit for your show, Top Chef, to come back to the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I know it was something your team had been planning on doing for a while. And so I'd love to know, like, what do you think is unique about the food scene in the Pacific Northwest compared to the rest of the country? Well, I mean, you have this beautiful climate, okay? And that produces lovely agriculture. So you have access to beautiful fruits and vegetables in a way that we don't all year in other parts of the country. But you also obviously are on the Pacific, so you have this great seafood um, as well. And people don't know about that necessarily but in the rest of the country. We think about the Gulf, we think about New England, but you know, the Pacific Northwest has some incredible seafood. In fact, I actually prefer West Coast oysters to East Coast oysters um, because of that. Not that I'm an oyster connoisseur, but... And then there's also this tradition of foraging in the Pacific Northwest, which is beautiful and is something that as we try and get back in harmony with Mother Nature, really bears looking at. You know, we walk by and trample dandelions, you know, while going to into the Whole Foods to buy a bag of spring mix for $15 or I don't even know, what does it cost now? But do you know what I mean? So yeah. we have, in even in our effort to eat, well and organic and stuff we forget the obvious so you know for all of those reasons and many more we wanted to revisit um the pacific northwest i had had such a wonderful time in seattle pike place market is one of my favorite markets 
um, in the world, actually. And um, I have very dear friends who live in Seattle. And so, you know, but it's been like eight years since we were, seven, eight years since we were in Seattle. So we loved how much of a food town Portland was. Also, you know, the coffee culture, the, the, the beer culture. So all of these little overlapping pockets made it an obvious choice, especially when we were doing a season in lockdown because it does have these beautiful outdoors. And so it, we thought would allow us to be outdoors in the open much more easily. But of course, with the fires, that wasn't the case for a lot of the season too. Right. Yeah. I know your team had to like kind of change around a lot of the stuff with, with that and, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, the protests that were going on in the city. And I think it's really reflected really well in this season. A lot of shows was kind of shy away from some things like that, but like your most recent episode was feeding the first responders. And it was really beautiful to see because food is such an integral part of culture beyond just like trendy foods, right? It, it really like unites people and helps support people. And I think your season of Top Chef is just doing such a great job of that. So, you know, I, I appreciate that as a fan and, and a resident of the Pacific Northwest. It, it's really doing such a fantastic job. Thank you. I appreciate that. So in addition to Top Chef and, and speaking of the way you in particular embrace community and, and society in relation to food, uh, I was a big fan of your show, Taste the Nation. Uh, which is on Hulu season one, you went through a whole bunch of cities, including San Francisco. So I was born and raised in San Francisco. So oh, okay. you've got to hit two of cities that I uh, very much are near and dear to my heart. Um, so can you give us any insight on season two? I know you're greenlit back in August. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously some things probably, you know, with, with COVID and quarantine, it made it a little difficult to get going on that. But what can you tell us about season two, if anything? Well, I'm actually in production right now. Um, we finished half the season. It's a smaller season, obviously, because of the pandemic. You know, it was very difficult, but we were able, luckily, to pull off filming Top Chef in a giant bubble. But on Taste the Nation, there's no way to be in a bubble because all I do is immerse myself in a different intimate space day after day after day, and they're always, you know... They're always unpredictable and changing. And so we just wanted to make sure that all our participants and um, my crew also were safe. So we waited to film. So we are filming a miniature season, a little seasonette um, that focuses on holidays and how different communities spend and celebrate holidays at the end of the year when, when the whole country is celebrating the holidays. So um, we go to four different communities. Um, we are in New York City to explore Jewish American heritage. We are also, we were down in Miami with Cuban Americans. Um, we will be doing um, an indigenous community shortly, and we'll also be doing um, another Asian community later on. So each of these communities will show us um, one aspect of what they do for their holidays, and it'll still be the same taste the nation. It'll just also have a big holiday element layered on top of it. That's great. I mean, something that stood out to me immediately with Taste the Nation is that people who watch travel shows or food shows, it's almost always hosted by a white male. Uh, and I, I mean, just to, to put it bluntly and yeah. something that I love with you and your show is that obviously you are a person of color, uh, a female uh, hosting the show and you immediately can sense there was something different about the way you host the show and, and talk about food and community. Can you talk about how that has maybe expanded at all for a season two as well? 
Well, I think the biggest way, as with any show, is now that we have season one to point to, right? So it makes my life easier. And I noticed that right away when we started production on this new season is that, you know, now people have a reference point. They've seen the show. I don't have to explain as much um, about things. But, you know, it was very purposeful to do this show with a different lens. It is an editorial show. It is my point of view. And my point of view is not male. My point of view is not being European American. You know, my point of view is of a brown woman living and raising her family as a food professional in this country. And I mean, the show is about everyone else's experiences, not just mine, mm -hmm. but um, it was important for me to discuss things in our program that I actually felt were lacking in other of those types of travel food shows, as you said, like we talk about family because food is so significant um, in its role in the family. And we talk about those dynamics. Uh, we talk about food scarcity. We talk about all the things that are maybe not lifestyle-y, you know, necessarily, but I didn't want to do a lifestyle show. I wanted to do, you know, my interests lay elsewhere. Let me say that. Like I already have a big, splashy, beautiful, show that's very aspirational in Top Chef and I'm really proud of it and um, I enjoy those other kinds of lifestyle shows too you know that other people are doing I just didn't want to do one uh, you know I wanted to do a show in the food that I was interested in in um, a sector of the food community in this country that I felt was underreported and um, allow people who normally don't get the platform to tell their own story um, and that I felt that those stories would be more authentic because they were coming from the person living those experiences. And as basic as it sounds, we really haven't had that. And it took me a hell of a long time to get it made, frankly. You know, it took me a while to sell the show. So I'm really proud of it. And I'm really glad that people are responding to Taste the Nation in the way they are because I really built the kind of show that I wanted to watch. Um, but I had to convince, you know, people with checkbooks that other people would want to watch them too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you convinced them. Uh, do you have a date for Taste the uh, Nation season two yet? We don't have an exact date, but it will be in the fall. It will be around holiday time, which is the beginning of the holidays, right. probably November, but we haven't decided. We haven't really given an official date yet. Well, fantastic. I'm very much looking forward to it, and I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast uh, will as well. But let's move on to the movies that changed your life. We'll go in chronological order, starting with your first pick, which is Sophie's Choice from 1982. It has a 7.6 out of 10 on IMDb with 43,000 ratings. Directed by Alan J. Pakula, written by William Styron, who wrote the novel Sophie's Choice, and the screenplay written by Alan J. Pakula, starring... Uh, Meryl Streep in one of her most iconic roles ever, uh, Kevin Klein and Peter McNichol. So when was the first time you watched Sophie's Choice? You know, I honestly don't even remember the first time I watched it. I'm sure it was in high school, um, but I remember bawling my eyes out. And, you know, I, I don't know how much the Holocaust was on my radar at that young age in ninth or 10th or 11th grade, but... Um, I do know that I could relate to just the pathos of these three people. And I think that that story is kind of extraordinary. And Will Styron is a fantastic writer and also suffered really deep bouts of, of depression himself. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to meet Doris, his widow, and get to know her a little bit. 
Um, and he was a really fine writer who suffered an enormous amount in his own life. And I think that that rings true in his writing. And I think it rings through in the script for that movie. But it is really brought to life in such a palpable, nuanced way by all three of those extraordinary actors. Um, you know, I had sort of forgotten that Stingo was, um, you know, was Peter actor I know from Ally McBeal. And I didn't remember that it was the same actor. And he's just such an extraordinary actor. He's had such a great career. Um, and I'm a huge, huge fan of Kevin Klein. I've always been a huge fan of Kevin Klein. You know, Fish Call Wanda is one of my other greatest uh, hits, greatest <laughs> films of all time. Um, but I think Meryl Streep in that movie is kind of staggering in her vulnerability. And, you know, Pakula just lingers longingly with the camera on her face and it's so super close up and it's rare that you see those close-ups now because everyone is shooting digitally or you know for whatever reason you know actresses also have their own ideas about how they want to be shot but I think that film is just so extraordinary on so many levels also because of the detail the costumes are beautiful that you know old-timey period in Brooklyn is also very very charmed and and every detail from the boarding house that they all stay at um to you know even just like little things like there are lamps mm -hmm. that have these kind of fringe on them that is of a period and i know that house and i know that neighborhood and not that i even grew up in it but i can picture it so clearly because of the art direction in that movie it is a beautifully lit mm -hmm. um movie because it's it's so interesting it seems like such it's shot in this warm glowing beautiful loving cast of memory and yet the lives of these two people are just disintegrating and they're trying to hold on and it's beautiful to watch meryl is just completely unbelievable in this like you were saying uh the the monologues where she is talking about her time um, back during the Holocaust, where it's just zoomed in on her face as she's crying with cutting back and forth. I mean, it's some of the most powerful filmmaking and, and acting, you know, people see on screen. It, it, it's, inc it's incredibly stunning. Um, when, when you spoke to uh, William Styron's wife, um, was there any conversation like about Meryl's performance in particular uh, or any of the no. cast members for the film? Okay, so... No, I mean, no, and I don't want to... Um... I don't want to portray it as like having these long, deep conversations. Sure. Okay. Okay. okay yeah. But, but I, you know, I, I am very fond of her and I, I love Bill's work and his writing specifically. And that book is more about Bill and, and depression and things like that. And, and that work of, of genius, but um, it's just palpable. It just shows you how fine, fine writing, whether it's for a book or, or screen can really really make the human condition come alive, even mm -hmm. if we have never um, been touched by the Holocaust or we haven't lived, you know, in Brooklyn of that era. It just is so evocative on a human and emotional level. That's what good writing does. It, it breeds um, soul and life into our every mundane action. Obviously, the big crux of the film is Sophie's Choice, where in which 
in a moment of literal life or death, uh, she is forced to have to choose between keeping her son or her daughter with her before she is going into the concentration camps uh, in, in Nazi Germany. Um, I mean, the first time you saw that, it, it's hard for me. Like, I am of age where I basically knew the story of Sophie's Choice before I had ever seen it. Were you able to watch the film without knowing that part uh, before you saw it or read the book before you knew that that was the crux of the film? And if so, what was that sort of impact for you um, seeing or reading that for the first time? You know, I remember watching the film and loving it. And then I, rem I remember what that title and the crux of the film dealt with. But I actually went back and watched it again as an adult. Um, and I've watched it over several, you know, several, I've watched it several times at different periods in my life, most recently in the pandemic. Um, and it's heartbreaking. It, it's really, really heartbreaking. It doesn't matter if you know, and I knew. Um, it's still the unfolding of those, of those layers is quite breathtaking. You see it all on her face. You know, yes, it's the writing. Yes, it's the camera. But at the end of the day, it is the fact. It is the very visceral knowledge of what this mother is describing, you know, and how she transmits that with every facial tick that is extraordinarily watched. I mean, she's very still throughout the whole thing, too. And even as she's telling the story, the way she struggles through it is is just so, so, so moving. Mm -hmm. Um before we move on to, to your next movie, I am very curious as to your thoughts. Like, you know, the ending of this film, Peter Mackinall's Stingo, he goes to try and find uh, Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein. He goes back to the boarding house and finds that they had both commit suicide. It's never really explained in the film as to why. And I think it's a really touching part of the movie that it's for the viewer to find out and, and piece together why they think this happened. I know you are very well-researched and, and think a lot about self-health and uh, depression like in your personal life. Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to what your thoughts were on that being the ending of the film. Through the whole film, you see Kevin Klein's character have an outsized influence on her. And that, I think, plays against this enormous weight that she carries for just barely walking, you know, just basically walking the earth when her kids don't, right? And um, I think that tension is always there. And when they have those blowout fights, you see that he's kind of obsessed with, um, you know, Nazi Germany and all of that stuff. And you see the paraphernalia and how he's, he's kind of unhinged too. And so you do see that unfolding as well. And I always took it to mean that they had just decided it was too painful to live. You know, that either he, you know, she had, whoever had brought it up, that he had kind of led her down that path. But in the end, she didn't want to live without him. And then she couldn't live with this enormous pain. I, you know, I know people have lost their children and it's just an indescribable whole of grief and existential crisis and i think i understand that film in different ways as i age as i've met others or gone through motherhood myself and you know been through life there are certain films where whenever you watch it and this is kind of a theme that i see throughout you know the the podcast that we tape here that most of the movies that people select to talk about are movies that they age with 
because there's so many movies that you age out of or you know it's that don't age well <laughs> and things that don't or things that don't age with you you know it don't age well at all but sophie's choice is just a, a movie you know i'm uh, about to have my my first kid in actually like a month ish uh and oh. i'm sure yeah and yeah and so after uh that happens i'm sure this movie is gonna just feel completely different to me um and so i am like curious for my own personal journey with with the film so i'm I'm very glad you had me watch this now and i'm sure the next time i view it it'll be in a very different scope and lens um but thank you for that yeah so sophie's choice really beautiful film uh from 1982 if you haven't seen it make sure you go go out and seek it if you want to see just top tier acting and, and everything across the board um uh as a film lover so this episode is brought to you by philo do you love tv do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Let's go on to your second pick which is Leon the Professional from 1994. This is an 8.5 out of 10 with 1.1 million ratings uh, on IMDb, written and directed by Luc Besson, uh, stars Jean Reno, uh, Gary Oldman, and the young Natalie Portman. Um, the plot is Matilda, a 12-year-old girl, is reluctantly taken in by Leon, a professional assassin, after her family is murdered and unusual relationship forms as she becomes his protege and learns the assassin's trade uh so pivot from sophie's choice but i'm glad you picked this as well because another incredible movie um so when was the first time you watched the professional again i don't remember (laughs) i don't i don't remember the first time but i remember being really struck by it and i'm a huge fan of jean renault he also is in le grand bleu he plays enzo a olympic swimmer an italian olympic swimmer and he's fantastic in that as well this is obviously where I, along with most of the world, discovered Natalie Portman. I don't know if she'd been in other things before this, but you know, Natalie was 11 when she did that. Um, and it's just an extraordinary, again, extraordinary performance by both Jean Renault and Natalie. Um, I love this story because it's one of those quirky films that reminds you of, you know, while I hope nobody ever has experience with being a hitman, knowing a hitman, <laughs> learning from one. Um, you know, those are the what make these characters compelling, those kind of cinematic, you know, life outsides of real life stories. But, um, you know, I think there are those quirky relationships that people have in their own history 
and lives that are kind of defy explaining there. And there are lots of those kind of movies like Carolyn Maude, right? So this is one of those sort of classic cinematic um, relationships that I don't know you could have today. Like there is that kind of very odd scene where um, Natalie Portman is kind of dressing up in the, you know, Fleabag New York hotel that they're in and she puts lipstick on and, you know, she tries to get him to guess that she's Madonna. Yeah. Of course, you know, this is the height of Madonna and, um, you know, in our zeitgeist. And, you know, he can't guess because he's so out of touch. And then she can't guess Charlie Chaplin or, you know, Singing in the Rain or, you know, whoever, Gene Kelly, I think she does finally get one. But it just shows that scene is extraordinary to me because it shows that these two people come, even though they live down the hall from each other in this apartment building, they come from such different worlds with just such different um, cultural touchstones and, and, you know, pop cultural um, references. But it also, like, when you see her and she's dressing up, you know, she is this prepubescent girl. Mm -hmm. And it is a love story. And the nuance of that, I think, would be hard to do today with everything that's happened. This guy who is shut down so much emotionally that the only person he can deal with is this 12-year-old girl and she, her on her own, is also really, really pursuing him because mm -hmm. she needs him for haven and cover um, and revenge, of course, of her you know family's deaths. Um, but it's an extraordinary movie, and it also I love it because you know Jean Reno's character is very monosyllabic also in here. So there's a lot of miming going on. There's a lot of that traditional acting where. You don't need to speak the language or you could turn down the volume and it would still be good. And that's also a lesson in good drama. Hmm. I like that. Uh, can, can you expand upon that? I mean, a lesson in good drama in where uh, the, the dialogue doesn't necessarily have to be there. I mean, you actually talked about that with Sophie's Choice, I right. think, where in which a lot of Meryl is like, obviously there's a ton of dialogue in there, but there's so much you can tell with her face that you could probably mm -hmm. watch that on mute and, and understand what's happening as well. Um, so what, what about that uh, part of film and acting attracts you? Well, I think there are things that cannot be said, but must be shown. Hmm. And I think great cinema shows rather than tells. I think great actors convey rather than say. Um, I, you know, I studied theater. I, you know, went to, uh, that's what I thought I would do for a living. And I, you know, look at that very seriously like that's the reason there are so many pauses in a harold pinter play um you know it's it's to say the unsayable mm -hmm. it's to convey what cannot be conveyed through language mm. and it's a language that everyone learns um by osmosis through existing it can be body language it can also be um breathing yeah. you live in a very noisy uh, stimulant infused world with our smartphones and things like that. And an actor who can actually be still and make you feel something without the words that may or may not have the same resonance for you is really great at their job. And that is their job to make you feel something, to make you watch them and to recognize something that is both fascinating and familiar. Mm. And from 
uh, Leon's very monosyllabic dialogue. Uh, we get the complete contrast with Gary Oldman, where he is just a completely over the top, uh, corrupt DEA agent. Um, how do you how how did you see Gary Oldman's performance in The Professional? Well, only Gary Oldman can pull off that over the top <laughs> performance. Yeah, it is so over the top that at times you're like, "Come on, this would <laughs> never fly," um, you know. But um, he's such an extraordinary actor, Gary Oldman, and I kind of I watched it recently. Also, I watched Leon recently because I showed it to my daughter. Mm. Um, and I'm sure it's not appropriate for her, but I just thought it's an extraordinary film and she is the age that Natalie was at that time. Um, so we just literally watched it a few weeks ago on the weekend one day. Um, and I'd forgotten Gary Oldman is in it and he's so campy in that film, but it works. Yeah. It works. In that particular case, it works because he's such this uber villain. Um, which you have to have because let's face it, these people are walking around bumping people off. Yeah. So you kind of need this almost cartoonish um, antagonist to make right. the relationship or the profession work. So it's right. all fantasy. Um, but Gary, I love Gary Oldman's performance in it. And when he kills Leon at the end, you know that this guy's such an asshole. Of course he's going to live. Right. You know, it's the good ones that die. And that's also what I like about Leon. You know, sorry about giving you the spoiler, but you no, know, it's fine. Yeah. I, I, I like that the hero just doesn't kind of walk into the sunset with Natalie in his arms, you mm -hmm. know. Oldman shoots Leon in the back also while he's walking away. It's just like, of, of course, course he, he would does. do that. Right. Of course, he, he can't do it with like his whole army of people, but he has to do it like that. It's like a cheap shot at the end. Um, my last question on, on this film is I know both you and Natalie Portman are like fantastic humanitarians um, and advocates for women, not only in acting, but just like in general. I know you both have been at various forefronts of Time's Up and, and, and things like that. So um, what is that like when you get to see Natalie at such a young age and now she is, you know, working alongside you with so many important uh, endeavors and projects. She's awesome. Um, she is a real force of nature and she's very intelligent and she's very thoughtful. And, um, you know, I've had, I've spent time with her because I had her on top chef uh, when we were, I think in Vegas um, if memory serves, but she, she's an awesome person. And I think you see in that film, even though she's only 11, you can see um, an emotional intelligence there that is already fully formed. It's interesting to go back and have the footage of Natalie, you know, even in that role, because you don't often get to see what people are like um, at length in that way when they're young. And she's just a really magical thinker. Um, I think if you're destined to do something, that seed is in you. It's still up to you to develop whatever muscles are there into something real. Um, but I think you can see, you know, people are who they are. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. So our, our traditional last question here on Movies That Changed My Life is, uh, I ask our guests. So you selected Sophie's Choice and uh, Leon the Professional. Um, what is your through line between these two films that you believe is the reason as to why you want to talk about them today? I think it's nuance. 
I think it's nuance and relationships and extraordinary performances that convey uh, the ins and outs of what living inside those friendships and relationships look like. I mean, the relationship between Meryl Streep's character, Kevin Klein, and Stingo, it's a very complicated one. He idolizes Kevin Klein, but he's mm -hmm. in love with Sophie. And she really mothers him. You know, Stingo becomes the surrogate child that Sophie never had because you can tell Sophie's suffering because she has all this love to give and her kids are no longer around, no longer around to accept it. And then, you know, for Kevin Klein, he's really, he's really a disturbed man who likes having the dependency, the emotional dependency of these two people. And if you look at Leon or the professional, Natalie Portman is the protagonist of the professional. She's just so dependent on Jean Renault's character because she's a child and she is not in control of any of these extraordinary things that happen in her life. And she's beholden to the world because she's a minor. And, and yet she really is the one who has that, who has the power in that movie over, of course, Gary Oldman, but also, of course, you know, with Leon. And we see that. And that's why we see her walk away. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So we have Top Chef Portland, uh, which is currently running, I think, through July, uh, which comes out on Thursdays. What can you tease for the, the finale of Top Chef? I can't tease anything. I'm not supposed to say anything. I'm not going <laughs> to say a damn word. You just have to watch. Okay, we just have to watch just to yeah. see the end. Okay, and then uh, Taste the Nation season two coming out in the fall on Hulu. Um, anything else? Stream all of the episodes from season one on Hulu. They're all up there right now, and it would be great if you know people could give it a second look. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like we said at the top of the episode, it's a really beautiful and and new and unique look into food shows, travel shows. It's much more than, like you said, like a lifestyle show. It's about community and, and what brings people together. And it's a really beautiful take on it. So I'm really glad it's coming back in the fall. And if you haven't watched it, make sure you go check that out. And go check out all the numerous other Top Chef seasons. On Hulu also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can check all of that. Well, uh, Padma, thank you so much. This was a ton of fun. I really enjoyed the conversation. And um, yeah, I hope you have a good rest of the day. And we'll talk soon. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to head over to imdb.com slash podcasts for more content on Padma and to easily add the movies that changed her life to your IMDb watch list. 